Hey, it's Teresa. So what is resilience anyway? I think many of us had to redefine that word in the past year. We realized that it wasn't so much about getting through a rough patch, but instead navigating a never-ending series of peaks and valleys, twists and turns, but mostly valleys. In physics, resilience describes the ability of an elastic material, such as rubber or animal tissue, to absorb energy, particularly from a blow, and release that energy as the material springs back to its original shape. But when we think about the people and organizations that suffered body blows during COVID, resilience describes the way many figured out not only how to bounce back, but what new shapes to take. These resilient ones figured out a new way of doing business, of reaching new customers, of keeping their organizations afloat. And more importantly, they've prepared themselves for a post-pandemic future. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm Trin Teresa Doe. On today's episode, we revisit a few of our favorite stories of resilience from the past year. Among them, a bicycle shop owner in Halifax who learned how to sell online and find a better way of packing boxes. And also, a Calgary-based startup that's helping companies engage in charitable giving and, quote, infuse a culture of goodness into the world, something that was sorely needed during these trying times. But first, the inspiring story of the Stratford Festival, North America's largest classical repertory theater company, now in its seventh decade of operations. For the second summer in a row, Stratford has had to dramatically curtail its programming. It's directing most of its performances online. Although by the end of August, 2021, some limited in-person shows are expected on the shores of the Avon River. When we spoke with Stratford's dynamic artistic director, Anthony Cimolino last December, the future was less certain. Though his trademark confidence and vision for success remained just as clear. 2020 was incredibly challenging. Uh, we were beginning rehearsals and, and well underway actually for many of the programs. We were doing 15 plays, introducing a new $100 million theater and uh, we were stopped in our tracks. Our mission is to connect with people, to bring people together over great works of art and share them uh, with a live audience. And suddenly the one thing that we were built to do, we couldn't do. The economic impact was huge. It was a $20 million hit. Uh, and uh, staying connected with audiences was vital. And so we had fortunately been recording the plays on our stages, our Shakespeare productions especially, because we wanted to create a Canadian library of these great plays with this wonderful company. And so we had been doing that for many years. And for a while, we questioned whether we should. I mean, it was a million dollars for every one of these recordings. But it, I felt it was important to conquer geography. It was important to conquer time, to preserve these performances and to spread them around the world. So we created a, a film festival, which uh, unrolled over 12 weeks, and it was sent around the world. We uh, showed 12 different films, and, and we clustered them around the ideas that we were examining during this time of isolation. And it was seen by 1.2 million people around the world. And... About 44% of that 1.2 million people were from non-English speaking countries. So India was our biggest market and after that Germany. And it spread the word of the Stratford Festival right around the world. 
Stratford also launched its own online platform in 2020, Stratfest at Home, charging $10 a month for access to a wide variety of films and events. By June 2021, more than 2 million people from more than 80 countries had viewed Stratford's online work or attended one of its watch parties. Some people initially worried that going digital might dilute the Stratford brand. But Anthony told us that having a multi-platform strategy is something that will ensure the festival's ongoing success. We realize that producing work online, digital production, will be vital to the future. I think we're all realizing that. But of course, the secret to theater is being there in person with others. And that's what really makes it magical, that sense of immediacy where anything could happen. But I think in the future, that's going to have to be enhanced with access to all sorts of additional, uh, you know, um, uh, performers, uh, understandings, ways of working through the digital medium. And we're doing more and more work uh, commissioning artists to explore what that means in new and exciting ways. So the future is not only what it's been in the past since five centuries uh, B.C., which is live performance and people coming together, the future will be enhanced with uh, a different perspective, a new perspective that is also digital and can be spread right around the world. One could have been worried that for a live performance venue to suddenly be spreading things digitally around the world would undermine your core business or wouldn't appeal to your audience. And instead, we found new audiences. We found many people who'd never been to the festival before from around the world. I mean, we've always had an international audience. About 34% of our audience comes from outside of Canada. But now the pickup in, you know, South America and across Asia was extraordinary. And and I think that uh, it has introduced people around the world to this Canadian treasure. The response has been fantastic. I don't think it's everybody's cup of tea. But for so many people during this lockdown, this time of isolation, it was a way of staying connected with these incredible plays and these words. And, you know, our first broadcast was King Lear with Colin Fiore. And who would have thought that in a time of pandemic, something like King Lear would give people solace, would give them comfort. But the communications we received from people, this devastating play uh, reconnected them to humanity to the fact that, you know, uh, things can get worse. I know that doesn't sound comforting, but this great play says, hang on, guys, you are something, you are something valuable to the world. And, you know, things could get worse before they get better. But ultimately, we will, in some fashion, come through this. Maybe not all of us individually, but the contributions that we have made through our families, through our work, through our, the, the creations that we've made um, in art, especially, will survive. There will be a future. Shakespeare, of course, lived through the plague. Uh, There was a period of time from 1605 to 1609 when the theaters were only open for about four months. And uh, he understood, and that's actually when he wrote King Lear. Um, He understood that uh, there are times when we've got to just hang on to each other and, uh, and get through. And this is one of those times. Stratfest at Home has been showcasing the festival's Shakespearean films and original content. But now, it's also featuring content from other arts organizations across Canada. Organizations that are looking for new platforms on which to share their original content. For Anthony, both decisions made in the past, both by the festival itself and the town that bears its name, give him hope for what the future holds. It's funny to look back 
and to look at the decision points that were made, the decisions that were made that actually bore fruit and a lot of it in the years ahead. And it's hard to know those. I mean, our expansion into creating like 300 different special events where we get to understand what the what the work on our stages means to the world we live in today, the recording of these films and other related material was all about trying to better connect in new ways with those around us, with audiences. And we knew that instinct was right. We had no idea it would become so critically important in the time ahead. Sometimes the decisions we make about value segments, about who we are, how we're going to express ourselves has a a payoff in the years ahead we can never anticipate. You sometimes wonder why theater flourished in Stratford, Ontario, this railway town uh, that um, made some really important decisions years ago. They decided to create a park system in the middle of town. And even when other railways wanted to move in and destroy that park system, they refused. And that park system grew. And then when the railways were going to close here in Stratford in 1953, and the crazy idea of starting a theater festival for economic development came up, it flourished because of the beauty of these surroundings. No one would have known back in 1911 when there was a plebiscite in this town and they turned down jobs to keep their parkland that they were actually making a decision about the quality of life they wanted in the future. They were making a decision that would be a lifeline for, uh, for them 50 years later because if they had ruined that parkland, there's no way we could have had a theater festival here. So sometimes those critical decisions that we make, those decisions about who we are, what we believe in, what we want for our children, have enormous payoffs in the years ahead that aren't just uh, a nice to have, but actually critical to survival. Next, we hop on a bike and ride our way down to the other side of the country for an update from Andrew Feenstra. Andrew is the owner of Halifax Bike Shop Cyclesmith, which sells everything from bells to baskets, kickstands to cargo bikes. Few things captured the imagination of Canadians more in 2020 than the idea of escaping four-walled isolation and exploring the outside world on two wheels. Problem was, how to get those hot wheels when everyone else was trying to do the same thing. And at the same time, as retail stores were closing their doors in many parts of the country. For CycleSmith, in business since 1986, the first few months of COVID meant big changes in how they went to market and new definitions of what it meant to be a bike shop. Here's part of our conversation with Andrew from last December. Yeah, 2020 was uh, was a very interesting year, very challenging. Uh, the, the big thing that we had to do was, was pivot uh, and pivot changed the entire business. Uh, we're a bicycle shop in Halifax, brick and mortar. Uh, we went to almost a 50% uh, of our sales were done online uh, for a few weeks. And that changed everything, how we did our business. We never had a shipping area in our store. We now have three staff that are picking and packing orders and shipping them all across Canada. That is completely new roles. And we have taken some of our existing sales staff that would normally help customers that are in the store to helping customers uh, online. I'm a bike shop guy, not a Amazon guy. And understanding how people buy online, understanding how the purchasing is done is so different than in an in-store uh, situation. So, uh, you know, it was a lot of training, a lot of adjustments on on running the business uh, and investment. We had to invest a lot into our 
our website, our online you know platform, and get everything all sorted. And and a lot of this was done multiple years ago, but the tap was just trickling before March, and then it's full off wide open come March 15th when everything was kind of locked down and open for online basically and curbside pickup that we that we had done and and to learn how to do it we we copied other companies you know some of our staff had gone to other businesses and said wow they did an amazing job on their curbside pickup how did they do that perfect let's copy it and learn from from some of the best in class the quick pivot online allowed cyclesmith to realize record revenues last year but the success was not without its hiccups the biggest challenge it turns out was learning how to ship boxes on mass Last November, we did nine boxes. Uh, this November, we did 300 boxes shipping out. And so doing it by you know, hand does not work anymore. If we can save um, you know, 30 seconds on every box, that all of a sudden adds up to you know, four hours of someone's day that is not spending time on that type of thing. So it's, it's really making it now, now that we've seen where it can be and, and where it's going, we now have a bit of a vision on that. And then we can start to make those efficiencies. Um, we're actually changing the layup of our basement. So it's much easier uh, for when the items come in and where the items go out, working with Canada Post on you know their pickup schedules and things to make it quicker. And, and so we don't have so many boxes sitting around waiting for pickup in our basement. So those things are going to get picked up faster and everything just becomes more efficient. When we caught up with Andrew this June, he reported that online sales had settled at 20% of the total after a pandemic high of 50% in early 2020. Before COVID, online sales amounted to just 3 to 4%. The shift led Andrew to invest in new software to ensure his website is better integrated with both the in-store point-of-sale system as well as Canada Post, CycleSmith's main shipping partner. Looking back, Andrew said that COVID-19 pushed his business strategy ahead by four years in just 14 short months. When we talked in December, Andrew highlighted one key lesson from his pandemic experience. Ultimately, it's it's all about preparation. You know, there's there's a few things you know that you learn as a kid in in, in Boy Scouts is is be prepared, and and that's everything that is our success for this year is is being prepared for it. Not that we could have known what COVID was going to do, but we were certainly prepared for it in multiple years. So companies that always said, "Oh, get online, get your ecom going, all that kind of stuff," we did that a few years ago, but it was such a small part of our business, but we were ready for it. That was probably the biggest thing that we've learned. And going into each year, we always prepare for the next year. And that's really where most other companies can learn is literally be prepared and be prepared for the unknown. And then you're going to be much, much better off for your own success. Coming up after the break, we revisit a conversation that my co-host John Stackhouse had with Kelly Schmidt, the CEO of Calgary-based software company Benevity. They chatted about how the charitable sector learned to reach new donors in different and surprising ways during COVID. So stay right there. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm Teresa Doe. I hope you're enjoying this encore presentation. If you like what you're hearing, I'd encourage you to check out some of the conversations John and I have had with Canada's top business leaders and innovators over the past year. One standout is John's provocative chat on intellectual property and the future of Canadian innovation with Jim Balsilli, the former co-CEO of Research in Motion and the chair of the Council of Canadian Innovators. You can find past episodes of Disruptors 
at rbc.com slash disruptors or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's John Stackhouse. Canada's philanthropic sector is the second largest on the planet when you measure it on a per capita basis. We're behind only the Netherlands, and it contributes an estimated $151 billion to our economy every year, or at least it did in 2018. Of course, last year was different. From coast to coast to coast, most charity walks, runs, and rides had to go virtual or be canceled altogether. Even the bells associated with those iconic red kettles jingled a little less loudly this past holiday season. But against that bleak backdrop, we've seen some surprising, perhaps even prophetic successes. Take the case of Benevity. It's a fast-growing company based out of Calgary that's trying to reinvent philanthropy, and it just reached unicorn status, giving it a value of more than a billion dollars. It's my pleasure now to introduce Benevity's newly announced incoming CEO, Kelly Schmidt. Kelly, congratulations, and welcome to Disruptors. Thank you, John, and thank you for having me join today. Maybe I can start with some background on Benevity. Many of our listeners probably don't know it or maybe have only heard about it in passing. Tell us a bit about the company. Sure. Benevity is the category creator and market leader in a space that we call corporate purpose technology. So over 650 companies, including RBC, use our platform to power their corporate goodness programs and engage with nonprofits. So whether that's employee giving and company matching, community investment or grant making, volunteering, pro-social actions. You know, in our history, we've facilitated over $6 billion of of donations and and 34 million hours of volunteering to over 300,000 nonprofits around the world. So a lot of numbers there to digest, Kelly. But before we get deeper into those numbers, I want to ask you about that so-called culture of goodness, which I think was a phrase coined by your founder, Brian DeLotenville, who just handed over the CEO mantle to you. What does that mean? Yeah, so culture of goodness, with all of the societal and economic issues around the world, people are looking more to their companies to help solve these issues. And so when we think of a culture of goodness, it's just the desire of people to really integrate their goodness or their purpose with their work lives. They're not two separate things anymore. And companies that promote these purposes and culture of goodness, you know, actually are more successful in attracting and retaining talent as well. It's interesting how much charity has changed in a short time. There used to be an expression I gave at the office, which was a way of deflecting from someone knocking at your door asking asking for money. But now, I guess with work from home, the office is everywhere, but our connection with charity is also everywhere. Uh, We want to give, but we also want to connect. How is Benevity kind of rethinking, reimagining charity in light of all that technology is changing? Yeah, I mean, really, our platform was designed to democratize, if you will, giving and volunteering, and it allows employees to support the causes that they're passionate about in the way that they want to. So it's not just a once a year arm twisting exercise for you know, the charities that the company says are important, but it's also your time. It's opening it up to the causes that you think are important. It's tracking pro-social actions, such as getting groceries for a neighbor. Those are all of the things that the platform is enabling. And it's interesting what you said earlier about giving in Canada declining in 2020, because we actually saw on our platform that in Canada, companies and their people stepped up and donations increased over 70% year over year in 2020. 
What's going on there? Because that's a, that's a fascinating divergence that overall there are some indications of philanthropic giving going down, and yet you're seeing that's a massive increase. Why the difference? Yeah, we tend to not use the word philanthropy um, too often at Benevity because it is often associated with high net worth giving. Benevity is really a micro donation platform, and it was designed as such. And so without considering the company match that might be provided, the average donation size on our platforms in the neighborhood of $50, yet over $2.3 billion was donated through the platform in 2020. And so, you know, we're seeing that close to 75% of companies have some form of program that supports their people in doing good and rewards them for it. We saw many companies step up with matching campaigns all the way from one-to-one to five-to-one to deal with COVID and racial equality movement and other issues in, in 2020. And that drove a lot of giving momentum. And how, how is the COVID crisis changing? I'm tempted to use the word philanthropy, but you've just suggested that may be an inappropriate word. How has COVID changed opportunities around social good? From my lens, I would say COVID accelerated a lot of the trends that were already there. And so food security, precarious employment and housing, mental health, you know, many people were right on the edge with these issues before and and, and just barely holding it together. And, and COVID was the final straw or, or maybe the third strike. And the impact of it was disproportionate on the charitable sector. So there was a time in 2020, if you were a hospital or a food bank, you were getting more donations than you maybe knew what to do with. Yet if you ran a youth center or a science center or a place that was a hub of activity that where you had to close your doors completely due to COVID, your donations probably dried up and you were figuring out you know, how to keep the lights on without selling off the furniture. And so a lot of the trends were already there. But I think the thing that's going to persist is that many of these organizations to survive, they had to become online overnight. And so as you said, there's been no charity galas, no golf tournaments, um, you know, the fundraising activity that they used to do just completely dried up. And I think this hybrid model of in-person plus online is probably going to be really powerful going forward, not just for how we all work and do our jobs, but also for the, the charitable sector. If I think about the Science Center in Calgary here, I'm, I'm on the board of, you know, now we can bring in experts from around the world online versus our online presence just maybe being a Facebook page. And so it's a good opportunity, I think, for the sector to experiment and find new ways of, of doing things and new ways to attract new donors and to grow. I'm glad you used the word hybrid because that's a, a word that's come up on a number of uh, episodes through the crisis. We've come to call it the uh, the hybrid hustle, which is what a lot of businesses need to, to think about as they think towards uh, the recovery, whether you're in retail or entertainment uh, or finance. Uh, you've got to be online, everywhere, all the time, but also in person, uh, building and deepening that relevance. Kelly, I'd love to get your thoughts on one charity that's been digital from the start and what we can learn from its experience during the pandemic. I'm Todd Minerson. I'm the country director for Movember Canada. It pays to invest in your in your digital infrastructure. We've been an online charity since 2010, basically. And having that platform ready and available for people to participate was a huge part of how we got there this year. We were in a position to kind of look at 
how to make incremental improvements to some of our technology that resulted in massive returns on, on how it worked for people. The other thing that I think we really learned this year was that Canadians were ready to move to mobile for philanthropy. Our sense is when you've been sitting at home for eight or nine months, working on your laptop and ordering your life supplies on your phone beside you, making that switch to philanthropy on their phone was something we really noticed this year and felt like it was a significant difference in giving. It's interesting to hear Todd explain it that way because we've become so comfortable with medical uh, appointments, grocery delivery, conference calls all on our phone, often on the same device, sometimes at the same time. But as Todd said, you've got to invest in the digital infrastructure and in the technology. I sense a lot of charities think they can just put up a, a, a web page or have a, a site and that's their effort for digital. Yeah, destination sites, as you describe them, typically aren't overly successful because the challenge is how do you get people to your site, right? You know, in a platform like ours, you can have access to 10 million users uh, instantly, but the mobile piece is interesting. That was actually a part of our offering that we rolled out about a year ago. Uh, and so you can do all of your good on your phone. And when we think about the future and, and where it's going, you know, certainly we started by using corporations as the aggregator of, of people. But we want people to think of pulling out, you know, the Benevity app on their phone when they think of doing good in all aspects of their lives. And so their family circles, their friend circles, their sports teams, their kids' schools, their churches. It's not much of a stretch to think that you just pull out your mobile phone and track your good as, as it happens and, and as you move through those circles. Another charity that turned to tech during the pandemic is one actually that I have a deep personal connection with. I met our next guest more than a decade ago when he just lost his son and was exploring ideas around what to do about youth mental health. We spoke for a couple of hours, and it was it was profound. It was a moving conversation that uh, is with me still. He did far more than I thought possible, showing the incredible power of purpose and passion. He saw no choice but to do it, and now he's been forced to reinvent fundraising again. My name is Eric Windler. I'm the founder and executive director of Jack.org, a national youth mental health charity. We're fortunate that our staff of 48 happen to be mostly young people, so they're pretty savvy and adapted quite well to the challenges of pivoting to digital. The beauty of it was we had already anticipated shifting a lot more of our work to digital, and we see it now as a real complement to when things return to normal and we have our our in-person. As many of our listeners will know, one of Jack.org's biggest annual fundraisers is the Jack Ride. But instead of a massive one-day in-person event, riders took part virtually last year using apps like Zwift and Strava. And Eric was thrilled to report they actually raised more money than they had anticipated. So the target for Jack Ride 2020 was 1,250 riders to raise a million dollars for Jack.org. On top of that, we receive about 200,000 in uh, sponsorships. The sponsorships never left us, uh, and we were shocked that we actually ended up with over 1,250 riders, about 7,500 donations, and instead of a million raised, we raised a million three ten. So uh, we exceeded our target by about 30%. That's really impressive. And when I hear the stories of the Jack Ride or the earlier example of, uh, of Movember Canada, I think of digital relevance. And Kelly, I wonder how other charities can build digital relevance, which has increasingly become essential to success. Yeah, I mean, many charities, you know, became 
online video first organizations, um, basically overnight, even if they didn't have a head start as, as some of these examples. And frankly, they, they can't really fulfill their mandates unless they do that. And so now is certainly the time to experiment. The resistance to change is really low and, and the cost to experiment has gone down. And so, as you said before, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. We didn't think visiting our doctors on Zoom or by phone was was ever going to happen. And then overnight that changed. And so it's probably going to be in person and online going forward. And, you know, depending on the organization and, and what they're trying to do, there's different ways to engage with their donors and and to also find new donors through platforms uh, such as uh, Benevity. Kelly, how, how do you see over the next while technology continuing to remove constraints for for charities and for those of us who want to both give and connect with uh, social good? Yeah, I mean, you're not just restricted by borders anymore. That's for sure. That's probably one of the biggest benefits uh, there, John. We actually see a lot of cross-border donations facilitated through our platform, whether it's to support Australian wildfires or the racial equality movement in the U.S. You know, what a platform allows is for these causes to feature their content and for us to publish specific campaigns to support them. And we've got the benefit, I guess, of having aggregated about 10 million users in our platform that it would take probably a lot of money and and a lot of time for causes to reach um, that many people all at once when an event like this happens or when help is needed. It's obviously a challenging time in the social good space, but it sounds like an incredibly exciting time too. Kelly, where does Benevity go from here, especially as we move out of crisis into recovery? You know, I think, unfortunately, 2021 is going to be a pretty tough year as well. We're certainly not out of the woods yet. There's some positive signs on the vaccine front. But a lot of what we've seen and what we've learned in 2020, you know, including around sort of this hybrid uh, online in-person model, it's it's just unlikely to change. We're, we're unlikely to go back to a world where all of us sit in offices from 8 a.m. To, to 5 p.m. every day as well. It's just the world has changed. So we just think that what we do and and how we help companies and their people do good has just become even more relevant. And so we're just, we're going to be doing more of the same. Plus, we're going to be focusing on engaging more internationally headquartered companies. You know, we've been mainly focused on North America. and, And as I said earlier, trying to engage people in different aspects of their lives. So not just their corporate life, but in their personal circles as well. That was John Stackhouse in conversation with Benevity CEO Kelly Schmidt this past January. By mid-June, Benevity reported having processed more than $800 million in donations so far this year, with COVID-19 relief in India, Benevity's top cause, making up more than 10% of all donations. I'm Teresa Doe. Thanks for joining us for this look back at some of our favorite stories of resilience from the past year. I hope you'll join us next time for another special summer episode when we revisit the pressing issue of youth mental health. Talk to you soon. Disruptors, an RBC podcast, is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.